Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you all. Please turn your Bibles with me this morning, loved ones, to the book of Psalms again. We'll be looking at Psalm 123 this morning. The book of Psalms, Psalm 123. And the title of my sermon this morning, church, is A Practical Way to Pray. A Practical Way to Pray. Psalm 123. And once you find your place in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. A Practical Way to Pray, Psalm 123. This is the word of the Lord this morning, church. Started in Psalm 123, verse 1, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and we just thank you for the blessed opportunity just again to gather this Sunday morning and just to celebrate that King Jesus, you are resurrected. You are who you said you were. You were the Son of God. You are the Lord of the world. You are the Savior of your people. And we just come together this morning just as we sing songs of worship to you, Lord, and God, just to hear the announcements, Lord, just to even how to get plugged in as a church, and ultimately now to gather here together to hear your word preached, Father. I pray that first and foremost, be with my brothers and sisters this morning, God. Help them, Lord, that they will just be expository listeners. Help them, Lord, to understand the truth of your word so that, as James's little brother would say, to not just be hearers of the word, but God, to apply all that they learn today or anything that you, by the Spirit, prompt them to do or convict them of. Help them, Lord, just to apply your word today into their lives so that, God, they not only know you more and not of it, but that, God, they fall more in love with you for who you are as the greatest being imaginable and live in Christ-like holiness, all for the sake of your name of making disciples of all the nations, Lord. I pray that for my brothers and sisters this morning and any visitors who are here, Lord, um, whether by invite or to them, it may may seem like an accident, Lord. We know it's by your providential grace that they're here. We pray for their salvation if they don't know you. Um, We pray that they'll just come to realize that there is no other name under heaven that can save that the name of Jesus Christ. And so we just pray for that salvation, at least a rock to be left in your shoe. And I just pray for myself, particularly, Lord God, I am a broken vessel. I am only merely a man and the, the, the responsibility of preaching your word, rightly dividing your text and delivering it to your people, Lord, for the sake of your name. It's impossible, um, on a merely human effort alone. So, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit as well. Empower me that I am just merely your vessel, declaring your word this morning, Lord, to your church, so that, God, your body, your your people are made more into the image of your son, Jesus, and that, God, you are glorified through it all. The gospel is proclaimed. Christ is exalted. And that, Lord, we we, we just are even more um, just... Our hope is just reinvigorated today as we live our lives now for the sake of your name, King Jesus, until you return to make all things new. But until then, Lord, be with us right now as we just go through your word here in Psalm 123 this morning. We lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, church. A pastor named Richard Wumbrand was tortured for his faith in Christ. While living in Romania, 
Richard, his wife Sabina, and other Christians began experiencing persecution for their faith under the Nazi occupation in World War II. After the war, the persecution continued, but this time it would be communist Russia who would be occupying Russia, or Romania, I should say. And although Richard and Sabina would establish an effective underground ministry serving both their um, oppressed believers and unbelieving Russian soldiers, eventually one day they were arrested in 1948. And in during Richard's imprisonment, he recalls that, being, he, that he was constantly beaten by his communist torturers. For example, he would always pray in his cell to find consolation in God because that's only who he had during those times. And yet his torturers would find him doing so and beat him for it all the time. One day, a torturer came by to check on Richard. What do you know? Saw him praying again. And so he opened Richard's cell, yelling at him, Why do you keep praying? You know I'm going to beat you when you do. Your wife is in prison. Even your son is an orphan. So why do you keep praying to this invisible God who is not real? And in response, Richard says to him, Because... I am praying for you. In utter shock, Richard's torturer leaves him in silence without beating him that night. Years later, Richard and his wife would eventually be released from their imprisonment and leave Romania. And in light of their testimony of being tortured for Christ, they would establish a well-known missionary agency that perhaps you've heard of, the Voice of the Martyrs, and their mission for doing so? To spread their message. Hate the evil systems, but love your persecutors. Love their souls and try to win them for Christ. Therefore, Richard Wimbledon's story is a reminder for us, loved ones, that there is a cost of discipleship when following Christ. As the Lord Jesus himself, as, as he says himself right in Luke chapter 9, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For salvation can only be found in faith by Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior. And because of that reality, there's always going to be a cost. There will always be a cost in following Christ. Sometimes it will mean receiving verbal or physical attacks from your enemies, for Christ's sake. Sometimes it means our culture ostracizing you as a dangerous fundamentalist, air, air quotes there, for Christ's sake. Sometimes it means being canceled on social media for standing firm in the gospel for Christ's sake. Sometimes it would even mean denying yourself to the point of death for Christ's sake. There's always a cost to following Christ. It's not a matter of if, loved ones. It's only a matter of when. That's our calling as Christians. And so how should we respond to that huge reality? And the good news is Psalm 123 is an answer to that question, loved ones. And so as a result... Here is the main point of our psalm this morning. Depend on God so you may receive his favor. Depend on God so you may receive his favor. And to prove his point, the psalmist is going to split our, he splits his text into two parts. The first part focuses on depending on God. Depending on God. That's what the first part focuses on in verses 1 to 2. And in the second half, in verses 3 to 4, it focuses on deriving God's favor. Deriving God's favor, receiving God's favor. That's how he's going to prove his point here this morning. And so as a result, let's turn to the first part of our text today, which is again this, depending on God. Depending on God. That's the first part of our text this morning, loved ones. And so look at Psalm 123, verse 1. How the psalmist begins our text. 
He says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And so we, can, we are continuing our journey through a section in the book of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And if you recall from last week, these are a collection of psalms ancient Jews would sing during their pilgrimages to Jerusalem for various festivals throughout the year. At least three times they did it, but they always did it throughout the year. But yet, that wasn't the only reason what these Songs of Ascent were used for. Rather, they were also a reminder for God's people. A reminder for God's people in all times and places not to live for this present evil age. Instead, they are to long for the return home with God in the new age to come when Christ returns to recreate this fallen world anew. That's what these Psalms remind us of, loved ones. And so as we saw in the beginning of this section, Psalm 120, it begins with a cry to help for God. God, help me as I live in the wilderness of this world. And we see right after that, Psalm 121 is response to that cry for help. The creator God's protection of his people. God keeping his people here while we live on this fallen world. And as a result, last week we saw in Psalm 122 that it leads to this joyful celebration. The celebration of God keeping his people in their journey to Jerusalem, in their journey back to him again. And so now we arrive at Psalm 123 this morning. And one thing we need to keep in mind is that Psalm 123, it's a psalm of lament. In other words, it is a psalm expressing the psalmist's distress. And it is a prayer to God so that he may listen to the, to the psalmist and ultimately respond to the psalmist. And where we're going to see his prayer in verses 1 to 2, we're going to see the reason for his distress prompting him to pray in the first place later at the end in verses 3 to 4. Therefore, again, let's look at how the psalmist begins his prayer here in verse 1 where he says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And so the psalmist begins his prayer here by saying that he lifts up his eyes. To whom? Well, to the one enthroned in the heavens. And just notice the verbal connection here back to Psalm 121 verse 1. There the psalmist says this, I lifted my eyes. We see the same phrase there. But he lifts up his eyes to the hills. Where does my hope come from? And of course, it's in Psalm 122 that it describes that the psalmist finds his hope in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the city where God is there. God is there where to be with his people, and that's where his people go to worship him, at least in Old Testament times. And so now, the psalmist here, he's looking above the hills. Yes, he's on Mount Zion. Yes, he's where the Lord is. But he is looking above the hills here. He is looking directly to the one enthroned in the heavens. And that word there, enthroned, the verb in the Hebrew, it's really capturing this idea of really someone sitting on a throne. Someone sitting on a chair, particularly in heaven. In other words, the psalmist prayerfully lifts up his eyes to the creator God because, again, Although the temple was in Jerusalem, and that's where God's people went to worship him, the temple that Solomon built, it cannot contain the full eternal glory of the creator God. Rather, God is up in the heavens because he's the one who made the heavens. Not only is he outside time and space, but he is so great that not even his creation can contain him. That's why his, this, this psalmist is lifting up his eyes to the one enthroned above the heavens because he's the one who made the heavens and everything in it. And to kind of illustrate this point further, loved ones, consider what the book of Psalms says about this theme of God being in the heavens. 
earlier in the book of Psalms, the psalmist writes in Psalm 2-4, he, that is God, he sits in the heavens and laughs. For the Lord holds them in derision. And if you look at the context there, it's referring to wicked nations trying to wage warfare against the creator God in their rebellion, in their humanity, their depravity, rebellion against the creator God who made them. And God is in heaven laughing like, what are you guys doing? I'm the one who made you. You think you can rebel against me? You think you're in charge? Think again. I'm the one who is in control. And so again, we see him in heaven laughing in charge of the nations, even the mighty world empires throughout history. Even today, God is the one who is in control. Or consider Psalm 11.4 a little bit more clear in the language here. The psalmist says there, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. And so again, we see that, yes, the temple in Jerusalem was built so that God and the nations can come and see God, his glory, and worship him. But yet that temple does not contain the full glory of God because God is the one who reigns above the heavens because God made everything in the world. God is infinite. This finite reality cannot contain him in his fullness. And the fact that the psalmist, again, is looking up to heaven I'm going up, I'm lifting up my eyes to you, God. Again, the psalmist knows where his help is in. God in the heavens. And to, and to finish off with this psalm, just to illustrate this point in Psalm 115.3, again, our God, he is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, he's, he's everywhere, he's all good. Since he is Lord, he has the right to do whatever he pleases with his creation. He's the king, we are not. So he is the one who's in control. And that is why then the psalmist is praying to this God. That is why he is praying to him and lifting up his eyes to the one enthroned in heavens. Because he is the one who is the creator God of everything. The one that, cre- that creation is contingent upon for its existence. The one whom the psalmist is contingent upon for his existence. And what this reality is, is trying to show us, loved ones, is that it's really teaching us this important distinction between God as the creator and everything creation Even the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, you and me, loved ones, there is a distinction. The creator is not his creation, nor is creation his is the creator. Some Eastern religions get that confused, but there is a distinction. Everything creation, we are contingent upon something for our existence, and that's ultimately the creator God. And with God, he doesn't need us. He was here long before we even came, and he will be, because he's, he's eternal, right? He, he, he's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, where God has life in himself. Our lives, loved ones, everything in this world is contingent upon the one who gave us life. And so it's this distinction then that is not only fundamental to this metaphysical reality of the Christian worldview, but really fundamental to how the psalmist is thinking. Because if the psalmist had it all together, I don't need God, I can do my own thing. But the fact that he lifts up his eyes to the one enthroned in heavens God, I need you. God, I depend upon you, for you made everything in this world. I am made in your image to glorify and to enjoy you. I need to come to you in prayer this day. And this is really, loved ones, a breath of fresh air to those in our post-Christian culture. Why? Because, again, our culture still wrestles with that old question, who am I? Who am I as a human being? Where, where, where am I? Where do I live at? Is this just a, a, a world that just came through random chances over time? Or was there a purpose and design to everything that was made? And in an attempt to answer that question, so many people, so many of our unbelieving friends and neighbors will say that, well, human individuals, they have the right to create their own identity. There isn't a God. We're not supposed to live for him. We're supposed to create our own sense of self. 
And whatever that may look like spiritually, whether it's Christianity or atheism or Buddhism, to each his own. To each his own. As the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard observes about this reality in his book, Sickness Unto Death, he says, It's the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. In other words, humanity attempts to build an identity by freely being true to themselves. However, they fail to realize, always fail to realize at times, is that our identity was designed by God. We were designed by God to be built around himself, to be like him in Christ-like holiness, to live for him. And that is why people, if there's anyone here who feels this way, that is why people in our culture feel so empty all the time. They feel this sense of brokenness because they place their identity and self-worth in something else besides the one that they're made for. They place it in their career, their education, their family, their relationships, money, sexual identity, or anything else under the sun. We were not made to live for these things. Some of them are good, right? But rather, we were made for God. We were made to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. As the psalmist um, records in Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26, the psalmist says here, rhetorically, asks the question, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We were made for God, loved ones. We were made to live and to worship him. That is why the psalmist here in Psalm 123 can even pray to God in the first place because he possesses this awareness of the necessity to depend upon him as the creator through prayer. However, in what way does the psalmist look up to God in prayer? How does he really depend upon him in prayer? Why does he even bother in the first place? What's the point? Well, we see the psalmist illustrate all this in the next verse. And so look at Psalm 123, verse 2, loved ones, where the psalmist writes this. He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shows us mercy, until he has mercy upon us. And what we're seeing here is that the psalmist, he's employing two similes here to illustrate the exact manner of how he prays to the creator God. And for those who are unsure what a simile is, it's, it's a literary device that tries to indicate a comparison, a comparison between two things using the word like or as. And if we look closely here in verse 2, we see that the psalmist is using two for the sake of emphasis to really make his, drive his point home. And so look at that first simile in verse 2, where he says, Behold, as the eyes, we see the beginning of this comparison, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. That's the first simile. But yet, in order to appreciate the full weight of these similes, we need to understand the cultural significance between the relationship of a slave or a servant and their master in ancient times. Let's talk about servants for a minute. First, a servant, which in the Hebrew text is, is more, it's more better put it this way, a slave, a servant is a slave, a slave is someone who is owned by another person, either for service or sold into another person, um, or unless that servant or slave has worked his way out of slavery. That's what a servant or slave was in ancient times. In contrast, a master, 
A master was, any, was a person who exercised control or authority over another or others, primarily slaves. And just to add this, this quick note here, this is not necessarily the same type of slavery in Tantabil himself. Um, it, it's not the same, so you can't really like, oh, slavery mentioned in the Bible? It, oh, it's like, that in, it's, like, it's like that in America a couple hundred years ago. It's not exactly the same. I recommend doing more study for yourself, but it's still slavery nonetheless. It's still bad. It's still horrible. But nonetheless, why does the psalmist still choose to use this cultural example in his day? Why does he use? Why does he choose to use this example to illustrate how he prays to God? Because it is an interesting comparison, right? Well, think about this of how a slave lived his life before his master. A slave, in ancient times at least, he was utterly dependent upon God, upon their master, for every provision in life. Although they were there to obey their master's command, a slave was utterly dependent upon everything in their life based on their master, whether it be food, shelter, um, daily necessities. The master would provide them, but the slave depended upon his master for him to provide for these things. He didn't have a job. His job was to work for his master, and so he would you know, be, be an obedient servant, and then at the end of the day, he would expect at, at the mercy of his master to provide all his daily necessities. So you see here, the slave, in this relationship with his master, he fully depends upon his master for everything. And, and even look at that detail in your text, too. There's a small detail that a slave looks to the hand of their master. And what that really expresses is really the nuanced element of slavery in the ancient Near East. Because in the Middle East, even today we still see this, some people can call it, or it's considered, a high-context culture. A high-context culture. What does that mean? Well, usually high-context cultures, like in the Middle East, we, we, we see evidence of this in ancient times, even in parts of Asia, High-context cultures just basically means nonverbal communication. In other words, people in this culture are very less direct. Here in America, we'll be considered low-context because we're more direct in their face. We're just going to tell you how we feel, tell you what it is. If, we, if, we, if, if you need to do something, we're going to say, like, hey, can you, can you do that really quick? We're very direct. But in this particular culture, they're more less direct. Rather, they focus on maybe nonverbal communication like hand gestures or facial expressions. And so literally, this is emphasizing that the psalmist is literally looking to the hand, or, or sorry, the, the slave is looking to the hand of their masters like, I am waiting for your gesture to let me know like, oh, I received your mercy? Awesome, cool, thank you. Literally, it's emphasizing the fact that this slave depends upon his master. And just to further emphasize this reality, um, the psalmist gives another slave master analogy to further emphasize this in the next part of verse 2. And so look at that second simile, that second comparison using as. The psalmist says, as the eyes of a maidservant, to the hand of her mistress. And so this concept is, is almost identical to that of the previous simile. The only difference is it's that now it's between a female slave and her female master. And so it's just a gender difference here. But as a result, we keep we, keeping these, both of these similes in mind we see something very interesting. One, we see that power and the authority that the, that the master or mistress have in ancient times. And in contrast, we see the slaves or slave girls, they're fully dependent upon their master or mistress to meet all their daily necessities. But now that begs the question, how does this help illustrate the psalmist's manner of praying to God? And we see finally that these similes are being compared to this next part in verse 2. So look in verse 2, loved ones, where he says these words. So our eyes, there is a comparison there. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. 
And now think about that with me, loved ones. As the eyes of a slave look to his master, as the eyes of a female slave looks to her mistress, so the psalmist's eyes look to God. And to notice this, and notice that switch of the word our now. No longer is this a personal lament, but he's incorporating God's people together in this psalm. So this is a psalm not just for we as individual Christians, but for the church to pray to God. But yet, why, why do they all look up to God here? Well, the final part of verse 2 says this. Look at the end of verse 2, loved ones. Till he has mercy upon us. We are going to look to God. We are going to depend upon him until he has mercy upon us. In other words, God's people here alongside the psalmist will keep their eyes on God in prayer until he shows them mercy. And I'm going to explain very shortly in verse 3. What the psalmist means by mercy here in verse 123, alongside its significance for you and me, but in the meantime, we've got to ask ourselves the question first, in light of this relationship between a slave, a master, the psalmist depending upon God, do you, loved ones, depend upon God for every provision in your life? And I know that may seem like a, a rhetorical question, it's like, yeah, of course, John, but do you really live your lives by depending upon God each and every single day? Or do you live your life as it depends upon you? As the psalmist compares himself to a slave and God to a master, really, this is our spiritual identity as Christians, is it not? Because we as Christians, we are slaves. We were once slaves to sin, but now that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, now we're no longer slaves to wickedness, to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. Now we're slaves to God. And some people are like, man, one slave master to the next? Oh, if you're not a Christian, you don't understand how free it is to be the slave of the good God and good master, King Jesus. The Christian life that you and me now live, loved ones, we are called to be slaves of the master, to walk in obedience to him, to be like him, and only that, but to spread the good news of who our great God and Savior, King Jesus, is. And so part of our identity then, as God slays, as his servants, as his followers, is that we got to fully depend upon him to meet our daily necessities. It doesn't depend upon ourselves. Yes, we have jobs and we have to take this responsibility, but our trust is not in our own strength and provision. Rather, our trust is in God providing for the needs of his children each and every single day. Consider what Jesus says during his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 34. He says this to those listening, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, unbelievers, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so, loved ones, do not be anxious about the daily necessities of your life. God knows exactly what you need. If unbelieving Gentiles, if unbelievers know what they need, how much more does God realize that his, that his beloved children has needs too? And so live for God. Live for him by living for his kingdom first. Don't live for building up your own kingdom, but building your own careers or pursuing your own education at the expense of your loyalty who God is. Rather, live for God first. Do everything to the glory of God. If, if, if at, work, at your workplaces, work as unto him. Do the best job that you can, you know, making the best use of your time for the sake of God's name. 
your time, your finances, do it as unto the Lord. Love your neighbor. Do good works with them. Show them the love of Christ by loving them as yourself so that they will ultimately see your good works and glorify God. Put first the kingdom of God in your lives. Make disciples and live in all that you do for the name of Jesus because only when we do that will these things be added to us because we're not worshiping them as idols, but we're putting God first. And when God provides, we're thankful and we're grateful that he has shown us mercy in that way. However, there is one significant critique I need to mention here that many in our secular culture raise against Christianity. And one of the things that they raise is that they, they don't understand why Christians depend upon God the way we do. They don't understand how the God of the Bible just determines everything, that, how, a, how a Christian should believe, feel, do, live, all that. Because they argue that, well, it limits how they freely choose. It limits them to how they should live life. It enables them to be their true, authentic self. The freedom to determine how they will live their life. That just drives our culture crazy. And just that cultural creed, follow your heart, it captures the essence of this reality, which is really against all the teachings of Christianity. And the problem to that, loved ones, if, if you do have friends that struggle with this reality, or maybe they judge you like, man, man, you're just enslaved to this religion, you're enslaved to this God, you don't have you know, your own free will, like it's, it's horrible. But yet, when people start making those type of arguments, when people start thinking that way, especially how we live the Christian life, by depending upon God fully and all that we do, the problem is that when people start to make their own truth, it removes their right for moral outrage. When people start to make their own truth, depending upon themselves rather than God, it removes their right for moral outrage about anything. Consider what the British writer G.K. Chesterton says in his spiritual autobiography about this reality. And this was 100 years ago, but he was ahead of his time. Chesterton writes, Every act of the will is an act of self-limitation. To desire action is to desire limitation. In that sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice because when you choose anything, you reject Everything else. And that is a very interesting quote regarding people in our culture. They think being free is having unlimited possibilities to do whatever you want. But think about it. Say if you have a friend who chooses to reject Christianity and to live their own life, by them choosing to live that particular lifestyle against the Bible, they are doing so not only at the expense of Christianity, but the expense of everything else. And so although they think they're being free when they do it, they're actually limiting themselves to that one thing that they want at the expense of everything else. In other words, they are enslaving themselves to the one thing that they choose to do. And the reason why that's such a big problem, because like, all right, I don't want to live for the God of the Bible. I don't want to depend upon him as the absolute standard of truth, as the transcendental standard of all reality, because he's the creator. If you live for your own standard of truth, whatever you tend to make in your own bubble, say if you see another guy, your neighbor, who kills another person, you're like, hey, that's wrong. And that guy says, hey, I think killing my neighbors is just fine with me. You, you, you remove any right for moral outrage at that point. I know the example is very intense, right? But it's just to prove the point that if you don't have your standard as God, as the standard of all truth, you cannot have any foundation to know what is right and wrong at all. That is why people's thinking to be free, to choose to be true to themselves, it's a very dangerous reality. Not because they don't have a standard for truth and they're lying to themselves because they're inconsistent, but they remove any foundation to know how to know what is true at all and, and and it's because of this at the end of the day no one is really free loved ones and we know this as christians because everyone in some way shape or form is what you can call a spiritual straitjacket we're all enslaved spiritually why because we're dead in sin 
But praise, but praise be to Jesus, loved ones, that he, only Christ, can set the sinner free from death to sin to life in him. That's the goodness of the gospel. Consider what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36 about this reality. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so we're all slaves to someone. We're either going to be enslaved to the sinful desires of our heart, or we're going to be free slaves, no, that's an oxymoron, but we're free slaves of the one that we were always created to serve, to live for King Jesus, because we were made to worship him, we were made to glorify him, and it's only when you live for Jesus that you not only start living the good life, but really you realize, like, this is who I was made to live for. All that I am, all my desires, all my affections were not made to live for these physical, temporal pleasures that are fading away, not that we can enjoy them, right? Yet, we are called to enjoy these good gifts, not to worship them, but to use these as means to worship God, because he is the highest good. He is the end goal of all our worship. That's why we depend upon him, loved ones, and we ought to do so each and every single day. That is how the psalmist prays here in Psalm 123. He is depending upon God for everything, because he knows that apart from him, who is he? God is the creator. He is not. He rests in him as his creator. But yet, why does he pray to God? So, so we're seeing all this, right? Yeah, depending upon God, that, that, that seems good. But why is it so necessary that the psalmist prays to God in the first place? And not only that, but why is it necessary for us each and every single day as Christians to depend upon the God of the Bible for everything? And so with that question, loved ones, that we find an answer in the second part of Psalm 123, which is this, loved ones, depriving God's favor, deriving God's favor or receiving God's favor in verses 3 to 4. And so look at Psalm 123. Look at verse 3, how he begins this section, loved ones. The psalmist writes, Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough contempt. And so the psalmist now gives the reason why he prays to God in utter dependence. To receive his mercy. To receive his favor. And the fact that he's asking God twice here to receive mercy and favor, he's emphasizing really, this is the primary focus of his prayer. And also, if you were to notice in the original language, both these petitions of mercy or favor, they're actually imperatives. They're commands. But yet, don't hear me wrong, the psalmist is not commanding God, like, God, show me mercy, man. You have to. You have to bow down to my every wish. It's not that the psalmist is doing that as if, as if it's like a genie in a lamp giving him his three wishes. No. Rather, what this is showing us is that the psalmist, as a slave, to his, is confident in his good master. Confident in what way? That he is confident in his God, that when he prays to him, that he is actually there to listen. And when, and when he prays by faith, the psalmist, according to God's perfect will, that God will answer that prayer because he listens according to his perfect will. So it's not a matter of demand, it's a matter of faith. The psalmist is confident in God because he knows that if he asks, if, if he asks this according to God's will, God, according to his will, will answer such prayer, loved ones. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 8 to 9 about this reality. He says to his followers, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
And I know, I know some individuals who will use this passage like, oh, I can pray for anything. I can get whatever I want from God. That's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of the psalmist. Rather, if you pray by faith that God is there to listen, and when whatever you pray for is, is according to God's will, will glorify his name, even if it's a daily physical necessity, rest assured that God will answer that prayer according to his perfect will. That's how the psalmist is really praying to God here. But yet, that begs another question. What, why is the psalmist now then praying for mercy? Why is he so eager? Why is he so earnest, earnest in his prayer to receive God's favor? Well, we need to do a quick study on this word mercy, or in some of your English translations, favor. In the Hebrew, this is the word hanan. Hanan, that's the Hebrew word here. And the only reason why I'm throwing Hebrew at you today, because this word in Hebrew can either be translated in English as grace or mercy. That's why some of your translations might say grace, or other times might say like favor, which means grace and stuff like that. And so, so since the English can render as both ways, grace and mercy, what do these two words mean? Because there is a distinction here. There is a distinction between grace and mercy because it can mean both things. Let's start with mercy, for example. Mercy, and just to make it easy, mercy refers to that which God withholds from sinners generally. Mercy refers to that which God refer. Um, mercy refers to that which God withholds from sinners, which is what, loved ones, eternal death, condemnation. That's what we deserve as sinners who have rebelled against the Creator God. In contrast, what's grace though? If that's what mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve, death. What is grace? Well, grace is a gift. Grace is divine favor. In what way? Well, it is that which God gives to sinners what they don't deserve. And you know what that is? Eternal life. Life in him through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, and when we're going to get to this, how does this point to Christ later on? But the psalmist is praying to God here for his favor. He is praying to God that he will be merciful, that he will be gracious to him. But why is the psalmist praying for these things particularly? Well, he gives his reason at the end of verse 3. And this is a very real practical reason why he would pray such things. The psalmist says at the end of verse 3, For we have had more than enough of contempt. We have had more than enough of contempt. And so the psalmist, alongside his companions with him praying this psalm, they have had enough. They are tired of this contempt. And this word for contempt here, and later in verse 4, it means really disrespect, but in the sense of either verbal mark, mocking, verbal uh, mocking of verbal actions. It can mean both. And sometimes it tends to mean just like, you know, physically disrespecting someone physically, but it just means this idea of disrespect, showing disrespect to another image bearer of God, to your neighbor, either through verbal words or even just through physical actions. And the psalmist then further explains what he means by this contempt in the very next verse. And so look at verse 4, loved ones, at least the first part. He's tired of this contempt. He is tired of how he is being treated, how his people are being treated. Why? Who's showing this contempt? Well, verse 4 says, Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And so, the, so this psalmist here and his companions, they have had enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of those who are contempt, of those who are proudful. And just to highlight that word scorn there, um, he, what that means, it, it means, again, there's respect, but specifically when he disrespects someone with words. 
And furthermore, the, the, the ones here who are at ease, those are proud and arrogant people. People who are proud and arrogant in general, and in the context of Israel's day, as the psalmist would have been saying this, this would have been referring to Israel's enemies, by and large, unbelieving nations, people who don't fear God, people live as if God does not exist. That is what the psalmist is talking about here. This psalmist and his companions, they are tired of the disrespect of their enemies. They are tired of being disrespected physically and verbally by those who don't fear God. And the only reason why these arrogant people do so is because they pridefully depend upon themselves. They don't live as if God is Lord. They don't depend upon him for everything. They live as if they are gods. They live and depend upon themselves. And to kind of illustrate this attitude of arrogance towards God, Psalm 73 verses 6 to 9 kind of highlights this idea for us. This says here that therefore, about unbelievers generally, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, that is God. And their tongues stretch through the earth, that is thy neighbor. And people, and people will think about this, particularly in the context of Psalm 123. When would the psalmist would have said this? When would have the psalmist's enemies or unbelieving nations actually come against him and say these things? Be prideful, show scorn, show contempt, be disrespectful, whether it be through their, through their word or through their actions. People speculated, maybe the Babylonian exile, when, when Israel would have been, you know, because of their disobedience to God, they were taken away to Babylon in 586 B.C. Maybe the Babylonians were disrespecting them. Then other people would say, well, maybe it was when they were coming back from exile during Nehemiah's day when their neighbors were making fun of them. Oh, look at these Israelites, they're back. Maybe that's when they are being made fun of. Some other scholars think that, well, maybe it was during the reign of King Antiochus IV. It was later in Israel's history when he severely persecuted God's people. Yet we just don't know, because the text doesn't tell us, right? But the thing is, is that this just really refers, this psalm is just referring to any time, any time those examples I just mentioned, or any time God's people are in distress. Whether it be big nationwide, or even just the individual trials people go through on a day-to-day basis. This psalm is referring to when God's people are in distress each and every single day. It refers to any time God's people are in need of his mercy, especially when those times come against their enemies. And it is with these reasons in mind, loved ones, that it makes the psalmist's response here so compelling. His response here to the verbal attacks, to the physical attacks of his enemies, of his neighbors, his response here is, is, is so interesting because notice what the psalmist is doing ultimately. He is not taking matters into his own hands here. He is not depending upon himself here. He is not retaliating against his enemies here. He is not depending upon himself in any way here. Instead, he depends on God through prayer so he may receive his favor. He rests in God so he may receive his mercy because God's the one who's in control. He entrusts himself to God So he may be delivered from his enemies because God is greater than them. God is greater than these trials. God is the one who is in providential control over all things because he's good. And so he can truly rest in the reality that, God, I don't understand this, but I know that you're good. And I know that you're going to work all these things, not only for the benefit of my good, but according to your perfect will. And he's doing that through prayer. Because again, praying to God shows our dependence to him 
Any day we go without prayer shows that we don't really depend upon God. We depend upon ourselves. That's why prayer is so important. And that's why the psalmist here is praying to God. And such example is not just really a good, a good model for us to follow loved ones, but really reminds us of another person, does it not? Think about this with me. The psalmist example here, it reminds us of another person, one who was fully dependent upon God in his life. It reminds us of the one who fully rested in God for everything. It reminds us of the one who fully entrusted himself to God, even amidst the times of contempt and scorn of the arrogant and prideful people around him. This reminds us of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And although God, think about this, God the Son, the creator of the world, he had every right to pride in his own eternal glory, the glory that he possessed with the Father and Holy Spirit in eternity past. But yet, what did he do 2,000 years ago? He humbled himself. He humbled himself as a humble servant by adding humanity to himself. And so 2,000 years ago, he was born through the Virgin Mary. God, as a man, enters his creation through the baby, through the babe Jesus, who is both fully God, fully man, in this one person of Jesus who would be the Christ to save his people from their sins, to defeat evil once and for all. And why did he do that? Why did he leave his eternal throne to come down to earth? Well, Mark 10.45 gives us a good summary of Christ's ministry. This is what Jesus says about himself. He says, for even the Son of Man, that's he's referring to himself there, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And think about it. Is not Christ worthy of our service? Is not Christ worthy of our worship? He is because he's God. But yet before we can do that, he had something else he had to do first. In order for we to serve him as, our, as slaves, he had to first be a servant to all. He had to come and he came to do the will of his father to serve those by ultimately laying down his life for his people by dying on the cross for their sins. But why was that necessary? Why did Christ need to die on the cross? Well, because at the beginning, we know that when God made all things, it was originally good. It was perfect. God made everything in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And even the pinnacle of his creation, which is humanity, we were good. We were perfect. There was no sin. But yet, for those who know the biblical story, It wasn't long when the first humans, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They ate from the one tree that God told them not to eat from. And then wanting to be like God themselves, instead of depending upon God's word, instead of depending upon God for everything, they gave into the lie of the serpent. They depended upon themselves. And they took from that fruit, and then boom, sin and death came into the world. And we see this on a day-to-day basis. We see this in history, and we experience it each and every single day. It's because we have sinned against God. Our first parents have sinned and rebelled against God. God, who is the, the eternal standard of goodness, we have rebelled against him. And because of that, we see brokenness on a day-to-day basis. And proof of that matters that we all experience it. We experience the brokenness of the fall through broken families. We see nature is broken through natural disasters broken governments, broken systems. And another reason that we know that's all true, because people, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, do all that they can to alleviate that brokenness. Maybe, oh, maybe if I get a better education or maybe if I marry a good, a good, a good spouse and have a good family, that maybe I can forget about these things and have something worth living for. Maybe I'm just going to ignore all these things. I'm going to give them to drugs, alcohol, um, you know, indulge myself with pleasure or lust. And maybe I can just kind of numb myself out from the realities of the world. But yet that's never the answer. 
Because at the end of the day, it leaves your conscience still convicted that like, I am not in the right, I am in the wrong, and ultimately in our heart of hearts, it reminds us that there is a creator God that, that we're all held accountable to, and he is the one that we have to give an account. And if you're still in your sin, then the wages, the consequences for our sin against God is death. It's eternal death and hell. But yet, this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. This is where Jesus comes in to come to serve and to die as a ransom for many. Christ came as that suffering servant. The suffering servant prophesied 700 years prior to his coming in the book of Isaiah. He came to redeem humanity back to himself. He came to live a perfect life. He came to take seriously the physical needs of his neighbors in Israel 2,000 years ago to ultimately get to their greatest need, the need of everyone, and that is the need to be born again, to to be forgiven of our sins, and to be restored back to God because he's the one that we got to depend upon. He is the one that we got to rest on for everything. And not only that, but even when you think of Christ's ministry, even, even throughout his life here on earth, he always entrusted himself to do the will of his Father. He did not come to do his own will, but as a servant, God as a man, he came to do the will of his Father. And we see that ultimately, ultimately, he even entrusts himself to the point of death. Even death on the cross. And the thing that's crazy about those loved ones that we know as Christians, but it's always good to remind ourselves about this reality, is that Christ did that for us, for you and me, for those of his people, while we were still his enemies. While we were still showing him contempt. While we were still showing him scorn. While we were living as if life depends upon us, Christ came and humbled himself for the sake of us. For the sake of his enemies by dying on the cross. Romans 5.8 says this, loved ones, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Although we were his enemies, although we were at enmity with God, God still came to showcase his long-suffering, his love to his creation by dying on the cross for his people. And even when, we, even when people in that day crucified him on the cross, reviling him, saying names about him, disrespecting him, like, if you could save yourself, Jesus, come down from the cross. I guess you're not God after all. Jesus said, notice how Jesus responds to that. Very similar to the psalmist, but notice what 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24 kind of summarizes about this ordeal of the cross. Jesus says, or Paul says about, or sorry, Peter says about Jesus, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And as a result, the goodness of the gospel, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the tree of the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds, as prophesied by Isaiah, that you have been healed. It is by the good news of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross that you can have eternal life with him. Our sins condemn us. We can't save ourselves. There is no amount of good works that we can do by depending upon ourselves that we can save ourselves because we are guilty before God. If you want to be a good person, you got to be perfect. Hey, but I'm not as bad as Hitler, not as bad as Stalin. I get that. A lot of people are not. But yet, you're not being compared to a man. You're being compared to the holy God whose standard is 100%. And, and, and the truth of the matter is we have all fallen short. But yet, the gift of salvation is that although we have all fallen short of God's glory, God came as a man to die on a cross so if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, you will be saved. And that works because if, for the believer who believes in Jesus, your sins, think of a bank account exchange. 
your sins are placed into Christ's account and he dies on the cross and he pays your sins in full so God is still the just judge of the world. But yet simultaneously, we see that for the believer who believes upon faith, not in himself, not in anything in the world, but in Jesus by faith alone, his perfect righteousness that he earned on this earth is placed into the believer's account so that when God the Father sees the believer, you are no longer a guilty sinner. I declare you righteous. You are clean. You are forgiven. Not because of what you have done, but because you have depended upon my son who died in your place by faith and faith alone. And that's why he is both the just judge of the world and he is also the justifier. And so if there's anyone here, I exhort you, please, you must repent of your sins. You must repent of your own sinful living of depending upon yourself for salvation or depending upon yourself to live the good life because the truth of the matter is, you're never going to find it. It's only going to lead to more brokenness. And if, you're, and if you're honest with yourselves, you know you're not in the right. And if you keep going down the path you're going, you're going to die like all of us. But you're going to see Jesus one day nonetheless. Whether you believe in him or not, we're all going to see Jesus. And for, the, and for those who believe in him by grace, the gift alone, it's, it's, it's all by favor, it's all by mercy because we don't deserve it. For those who see Jesus by faith in him, Christ is going to say, this is my people. I am your savior. But yet for those who reject him, all throughout their lives here, if there's anyone here, if you continue to reject him here now and you die in that state, you're going to see Jesus but he's not going to be your savior that you're, re- that you're rejoicing at his glory, seeing him face to face. Rather, he's going to be a, f- a fire. It's, that face is going to be the scariest face that you've ever seen because you're seeing the God of the universe, justice, holiness. And he's going to say, I never knew you. As Lord, I'm going to judge you for your eternal rebellion against me, and I'm going to send you to hell. Not because he's cruel, but because he is the just judge of the world. That, so, that's, that, so that's the truth of the gospel. It's good news, but, yet, but there is bad news. And so if there's anyone here, repent of your sins, believe in him as Lord and Savior so that you could be restored back to the one that you're made to live, but depending upon God and living for him. So loved ones, with all this in mind, we ought to depend upon God each and every single day whether it be through trials or daily tribulations at work or with our spouses or financial or physical trials, we must depend upon him because he's the one who's in control. We, and, and, and the greatest way that we practically do that is by depending upon him through prayer. We must depend upon God through prayer. And maybe some people are like, but yeah, maybe my prayer life is not good, but I really read the Bible well. You need to depend on God, even if you read the Bible. Maybe other people are like, but yeah, I, I pray well, but... I don't, I don't really read the Bible a lot. You need both loved ones. And I just share this as, as a practical tip. Someone who told me this long ago, think of an airplane. You need Bible reading. You need prayer. Because if you have one without the other, the plane's going down. Because if you, if you only read your Bible silly, but you have a weak prayer life, then how can you actually practically grow in your dependence upon God? Yeah, you read his word. You see people praying to God, depending upon God. But how are you practically growing in your dependency on God? You can't do that if you only read the Bible. You need prayer to go along with Bible reading as well. Pray the Bible. Pray the scriptures. That's a great place to start. But for those loved ones, if you just depend upon prayer, but without Bible reading, yeah, you depend upon God, but how are you growing in your knowledge of God? Like, this is the God I depend upon. This is the God who is eternal, who's holy, who's love, who's awesome, who's goodness, who's holiness. I depend upon him, not because it's mere faith alone, but because I have legitimate reasons based on the word of God to tell me who God is. That is why I depend upon him alone. Loved ones, you must rest in God. You must entrust yourself to God each and every single day. Not only will you receive his mercy and favor, we, we, we already have in Christ Jesus, if you believe, but you will one day be delivered from your enemies. And especially the greatest enemy, Satan, the enemy of death, 
from all, of his, from all of his trials and tribulations when Christ returns to make all things new. And it's only at that time we find that eternal peace, and not only in this life by thinking about that reality to come, but also in the next one when Christ returns to usher, to usher in his perfect kingdom forevermore. And so as encouragement, loved ones, as, as, we, as we fight the good fight now, living for Christ Jesus, making disciples and growing in holiness as unto him, rest in what King David writes early in the book of Psalms, Psalm 55, 22. He says, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will keep you, loved ones. He will never permit the righteous, his righteous ones, to ever be moved. If you believe in Jesus, loved ones, he who began that good work in you all those years ago, he will bring it to completion one day when Christ returns to make all things new. And if I may just share this one thing, and if I'm, and if I'm honest with you, loved ones, I would be lying to you if I did not possess any fear due to the weakness of my flesh, just regarding everything our culture is heading, because everything I have said, right? Oh, that, that, that sounds great, John, but we live in times that it's very scary. You know, we, we, we see the rise of AI t- t- technology. We see just how immoral our culture is going down the drain. And, and just really the growing pride, the, the scorn, the contempt, the hostility of our post-Christian culture against God, against his Christ, against his gospel, and even us as his people. It frightens me, and I'll be lying if I didn't. But yet, as I was studying Psalm 123, it reminded me that this song can bring me comfort. It can bring us together as a church comfort. Because you know why? It reminds us that we don't need to be afraid. Because we don't need to be frightened. Because this is a song that's telling us to depend upon God. No matter how crazy society gets, no matter how crazy culture gets, shouldn't surprise us because this is what the Bible tells us what's going to happen. We do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be fearful because we can rest in the God who is sovereign over all this mess. And not only has he fixed the solution through Christ Jesus on the cross, but he is going to return to judge even once and for all and to make all things new. That is where our hope is in, loved ones. And so we so depend upon God through prayer because it's at that moment that he shows us his divine favor that we already possess, not because we depend upon ourselves, but because we depend upon faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. So therefore... We really see a very practical way how to pray here in Psalm 123. To depend upon God so you may receive his favor. Richard Wumblon did so while suffering for Christ all those years ago. The psalmist here does so as well amidst the suffering of his enemies. Even Jesus Christ did so when he suffered on the cross to redeem um, his enemies, we as his enemies, back to him. And so the next time, loved ones, you find yourself in a trial and in a tribulation, depend upon God. And he, will, and he is there to listen to you and to answer your prayers um, according to his will. He will show you favor. And the fact that we have favor in the Son, Jesus, he will not forget you. He will remember you. And so depend upon him. And even this too, just, just as, a last, last, as a last thought, even if your enemies ridicule you, as they did with Richard, with the psalmist, as with Christ, I challenge you, pray for them as well. And I know that's hard. Praying for my enemies, John, I don't feel like it. And of course, this is why we got, to, we got to depend upon God first through prayer, praying for his wisdom and strength. But yet, we're still called to pray for our enemies. They're our neighbors as well. So love them as Christ has first loved you when you were his enemy. Because not only are we showing the love of Christ and living out the implications of the gospel practically, but through it all, you may just win those types of people to Christ because you prayed for them. And so with all that in mind, loved ones, let's go to prayer one more time and we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper. Lord God,